Well, I'm Pastor Steve. I don't know if I happened to mention that. For those of you who might not know, those of you who might like to forget. Um, and uh, we have been uh, on a sermon series from when I started here as an interim pastor, um, not knowing how fast this was going to go, from Genesis through Exodus. And we're into Exodus 20 now. And uh, we have seen the um, what God did for these People, first of all, he called, first of all, he created, and then he called Abraham and, and said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to all the nations. And then he released Abraham's descendants and rescued them from the oppression they were in, in Egypt, and delivered them because he's a rescuer of oppressors from oppression. And, uh, and then we saw him care for them through the wilderness. And then they got to this place where God said, okay, I've delivered you. I've freed you. And now, do you want to be my people and I be yours and you be a special people to me, a, a holy nation, a nation of priests to bless all nations? And they said, yes, we do. And so there was this covenant they made with God that said, we are going to be your people, you're going to be our God. And as part of the terms of that covenant, the beginning terms of the covenant lays out the basic um, the basic principles, the basic worldview that is going to be followed. Are we getting the PowerPoint? Um, I should be able to access it. Okay. I just have to click like that. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I, I didn't know I had to click the first slide. So there you go. So we are now in this place with God's vision for his people in 10 words. And I'm going to read again Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Then God gave the people all these words, is what it says literally. Another place it says 10 words. Um, and, the, and the first thing he says is, I am Yahweh, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. We talked about being delivered from bondage. God has delivered us from bondage and welcomed us, well, Many of us, maybe you're still wondering, if you want to follow this Jesus guy or Yahweh, who is that? Um, if you have chosen to say, Yahweh is going to be my king, I'm going to follow him, then you've been freed from bondage. He's freed you from bondage to sin and other things and welcomed you into this journey. And now he gives some principles for how the relationship is going to go. The marriage is already done. Now it's how are we going to live together? And that's where these 10 words come in. We usually call them the 10 commandments. But now if you're not there, then you can listen in, but this isn't for you. So if you're saying, why should God tell me what to do? You're not there yet. You're not ready for him to be king. We get that. But those of us who want Jesus to be king and we want to know how to follow him, this is for us. Um, and we've looked at the first five words, starting with, uh, there's some, I was thinking I should get some kind of, mnemonic way for you guys to remember this but uh there's some cute ones with uh with so the first one is what yahweh is the only god second one there is no other god not two gods just one god okay second one is no two gods just one god third one is watch your words there's the father son and the holy spirit yahweh is the only god so don't use his name in vain um the fourth one is what Keep the Sabbath. Remember to, remember to rest as, as Jesus. And number five was last week? 
Honor your mom and dad. And now, so the first one's focused on justice with God, love to God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And later, it's talking now about how we can love others and live in just relationship with others. And we're focusing on God's vision for his people. This isn't just individually what kind of what you should do, but it's how, what kind of a people would be best if they lived these principles and lived this way. So, God's love for his people, we're on to 10. So, anybody watch the news this week? Um, so we could talk about Saudi Arabia, we could talk about, we could go down a whole list of things and things that didn't really make the news, but yesterday, the latest thing was a gunman kills 11 in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Um, our news is full of murder, isn't it? And debates about what we can do about murder, and, uh, and that's just yesterday's news, but every day has its own news and things that didn't make the news whether they're from domestic abuse or from other things, it's full of that. And so the word number six is you must not murder. The kind of society we want, the kind of people that God wanted to create was a people where you must not murder. Now, the King James Version said this, do, you must not kill, do not kill. Um, so what does this word in Hebrew mean? You must not murder. So probably homicide do not commit homicide would be the technical way to use it because it's used in context like this where it's somebody killing somebody, but, but uh, this same word is used here. Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. So throughout the law, the punishment for death is death. And the punishment for knocking out an eye is knocking out an eye. And for stealing is, is having something taken away. So but if it was simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar and be put to death. So Exodus 21 and Numbers 35. Numbers 35 is, this is a murder is somewhat of a rare word, but in Numbers 35 it's used a number of times, and it's about this thing of killing somebody. Um, someone killing somebody else in an unauthorized way. And there were cities of refuge set up, mostly within a day's journey so that people could get away from the person who was taking vengeance from the family and saying, you killed my brother, i got to kill you. Um, they could run to this place, and there they'd be protected if it was accidental. Now, it still was no, like, no, no big deal because they had to stay in that city until the high priest died. They were basically in house arrest until the high priest died. If they, if they went out, then the the person could avenge them and, and kill them. So there was protection for those who accidentally killed, but it was a very serious thing to take another person's life. Um, so the King James Version says, do not kill, that's too broad, because this Hebrew word is not used in the Old Testament for war, for self-defense, for suicide, for slaughtering animals, or except in one word play is it used in capital punishment. One place where it's using the same word just so it's really not about capital punishment or all those other things, which we have sometimes used this. But the principles may apply there. We'll, we'll see. So the, the point is, it's an unauthorized killing of a person by an individual. It's not really about um, what happens if, if uh, capital punishment, for example, or, or um, in, a, in a war. It's unauthorized killing by a person of a person by an individual. Now the question is, who authorizes 
who could authorize somebody to kill somebody? Um, well, you know the famous saying, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Well, that's not actually, um, you don't have authorization to do that. Um, who has authority over life and death? That is the key question. That's the key thing that this is getting at and the key question we need to ask. Who has authority over life and death? If you look back to creation, you'll recall who gave life. Who was it that gave life? Well, God gave life. He created all things that are alive. But he specifically created man and woman in his image. You remember that? And then you probably remember their first son, Cain, got upset with his brother and killed his brother. Interesting, in that text, God actually says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. You must master it. How gracious of God to say, hey, Cain, watch out. I see that anger. I see that hate in your heart. If you let that go, and, but he does let it go. He kills his brother, the first murderer, it starts out immediately, and we talked about how justice goes from the family to the society to international injustice and idolatry, but we're not doing Genesis this time. So in Genesis 9, at the end of the flood, God blessed Noah. He reinstituted the things that he said. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He says, I will, and he also says, now you can eat animals. Apparently before that, they weren't eating animals. He says, I give you the animals also to eat. But he says, and I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. The life is in the blood. I'm going to require the blood of that person who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. So this is serious. You cannot take anyone's life because they are made in God's image. It doesn't matter how poor they are, how rich they are, how different they are from you, whether they're male or female or, or what place they came from or what color they are or anything else. It does not matter. They are in the image of God. Therefore, you may not kill another person. The other piece of the image of God is that God has given us authority as his representatives. So we are in God's image. So when you kill somebody, it's like killing God in effigy because we're, in, we're his image. But then he's also, as the image of God, we've been given some authority to make things, rule things in this situation so that we, on his authority, kill those who kill others. So we execute murderers in Israel because they have taken the image of God. And therefore, as the image of God, we are required to, to um, take that image. It's serious, okay? So it's based on that thing that we are created by God and we are in his image. So who has authority over life and death? Only life's creator, Yahweh, the Lord God, is the only one who has authority to take life. He can give that to others. In Romans 13, it says the sword is given to the government to do what God wants it to do, but it's not a, a blank check. Okay, so what does it mean that, what are the, so what? What are the implications of that? 
Well, first of all, let me make a quick comparison to other nations. In other nations around Israel, there were similar things. Most times, there was capital punishment for killing. But unlike neighboring nations, status does not matter. In other nations, the laws were, well, if he was a, if he was a higher class person who killed a lower class person, then, you know, a little money might take care of it. A slave, you know, whatever. Um, and so there was compensation based on how valuable the person was. But in Israel, that's not the case. Everyone is an image of God. There is no status related to life and the blood. And also, there was no compensation. In other places, you could, if, if the family said, okay, we would kill the person who did it, but if you pay us, we'll let it go. In Israel, no. No compensation can replace execution of a murderer. So the person who killed must be killed because it's that serious. Life is not something you can buy. Um, so only Yahweh has authority. That has a lot of implications. So what? If Yahweh has only authority, then what does that mean for war? One of the things it means is, the question is really not, does the state want me to kill this person? The question is, does God will me to kill this person? Does God want me to kill this person? Not does my country want me to, but does God want me to? In what context could I kill this? Is this a just war? Is this So there's been debates about pacifism and, and uh, just war and other things. I won't get deep in the weeds of that. It has implications for abortion. Um, I'm pro-life. I'm also pro-choice. Make good choices. And God is the one who gets to choose when he gives life and when he does it. Um, this is... This is, uh, now we can, we can have debates about when life starts and, and so forth, but the principle is this, that life is from God. And you can get yourself in situations, but that doesn't necessarily mean getting out of them is easier. I'm, I'm glad Elijah's here. Jessica and Ibnu could have chosen a different way because it was complicated. And it's not going to be easy going forward, not having a, a husband here to, to deal with this but she's chosen life. Now, this is a difficult thing. I know there are people here who've had abortions who, and you're feeling uncomfortable with this. There's grace as well. And uh, as, we'll, as we'll see, as we get farther into this, this applies to more and more of us. So I know when we started this, you were like, oh, do not commit murder. I'm good. I can sit through this one. Last week was hard, but this one, ah, I'm good. Well, we're getting there. Um, what about suicide, euthanasia? Do I have a choice over my own life? Gene, do I have a choice over my own life? No. <laughs> Jean is a very powerful proponent for this, and she has lived a very full and abundant life ever since she was a teenager with most of her body paralyzed. Um, it's not her choice, even if she thought it was uncomfortable. And sometimes it is. There's, she's had a lot of, of uh, physical challenges throughout the years, but she has lived an abundant life. We've all been blessed by her. It's not a choice that I get to make about even my own life. Um, it also has implications for health care and public health. It's not really up to the doctor or the medical system or whoever whether life is extended. We we get in this confusion that because we get a little technology and we can 
keep some life support going for a while, that we have a choice. It really is God's choice. And if we were a little less idolatrous about our medical system, we'd realize we're going to die anyways. And we don't necessarily need to spend a million dollars in the last two days. Um, and I mean, those are, these are tough choices. I'm going through the list of, of hard things here. But, um, and it, to be honest, it's not, uh, it's not really, we, we also have to think globally and not only within the U.S. healthcare system. It really isn't just that we spend $5,000 plus on our medical care and $50 in Tanzania and Kenya or, and Ebola, whatever. You know, Bainey's got Ebola right now. God cares. Those people dying are the image of God. And it's going to get here if we don't deal with it in the village. So, um, and I, I'm grateful for the medical. I, I just spent, uh, I don't know what, $6,000 this, this week on a prostate biopsy. Thankful, thankful for, for Jan getting a job and some, some health care for the first time. Um, but we, we have to be um, cognizant of this information that God is the one who has authority over life and death in all of our public health and, and all life. All life is valuable. The image of God everywhere, everyone is just as valuable. Now, Leviticus, um, oh, you know what? I'm going to go back to this one. Just, uh, I'm going to talk about, a little bit about war. We'll, we'll get there later, but here's, here's, we'll talk a little more later too. But um, I want to specifically mention that a lot of people are like, who can stand this terrible Old Testament God who is so into killing? So some of you are saying, wait a second. God says do not murder. But then... He says, wipe out the Canaanites? What's with that? Um, so let me give you a few, a few things to think about. Not that this is going to solve it all, but first of all, who is it that authorizes who can kill or who cannot kill? God, right? Yahweh. He can say, wipe those people out because he gave life to those people. Keep in mind, this was only a limited thing. This was just moving Israel out of being bondage and slaves into Canaan and giving them a place. And it was just that generation in Canaan. But actually, God says he was punishing them for a buildup of problems that have been happening. In Abraham's time, he said, the Canaanites are wicked, but they're not wicked enough. I'm giving them 400 years to repent and change from their idolatry, from their child sacrifice that they were practicing, from the the idolatrous prostitution and promiscuity. And if you look at Canaanite culture, it was not good. And God actually says the land is going to vomit them out because they are that bad. And God is not a God of favoritism. He warns the Israelites, you act like Canaanites, I'll do the same thing to you. And they did. They followed injustice, they followed idolatry, they followed the ways of the Canaanites, and God brought the Assyrians and Babylonians in and took them out of that land. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. But God has the right to punish. And it's true that a particular generation of Canaanites ended up getting the final blow. And it's, you know, fairness is not always, we can't always figure out fairness. And, and actually, I, I notice most people don't really bother when they say like, you know, I'm more blessed than other people and I don't know why. That's just not fair. Most people don't get real bothered about that. 
But then, and even when I get my own just punishment, and my brother or sister doesn't get punished for the same thing, even if I deserved what I got, boy, am I steamed. I got a spanking for that. How come he didn't get a spanking for that? Even if mine was just fair, I was warned, right? So um, fairness is a hard thing to, to figure out. And in the end, God is going to do a final judgment. In fact, that's a precursor of the final judgment when God is going to bring judgment to all, resurrection of the good and the bad, and, and everybody is going to get according to what they have done. And so he'll sort it out with the Canaanites. Um, and he'll sort it out with those in Jesus' time who said, we're just as bad as the Canaanites. Now, the other piece is it's wrong for us to use this for our wars. Unless God gave us specific instructions to wipe other people out. Somehow, every war, all of us say we're Israel and they're Canaanites. It doesn't matter if it's South Africa. It doesn't matter with dealing with Native Americans in America. It doesn't matter where it is. People are like, oh, they're Canaanites and we're, you know, God's giving us this. So we can do whatever we want. Did God specifically give you that instruction? Or did you just make that up? Because it sounded good to you for your own purposes. Um, and so the other wars, there are a lot of wars in here that were not blessed by God. There were a lot of just injustice and other stuff. So not all wars. Okay, we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But let's go on to Leviticus 19 because I want you to see that the law itself the Torah itself goes deeper. So now you can start to squirm a little more. Um, and I can start to squirm a little more. He says, do not go about spreading slander among your people. So don't say bad things about other people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. So We'll talk about this a little more, but um, when we say things about others, that can have implications. You know, nobody ever kills a person. You ever notice that? Those people in Pittsburgh, the guy who killed them did not kill people. He killed invaders. He killed Jews. He killed people who are coming here to kill my people. He killed enemies. He didn't kill people. And so when we start changing our words, instead of talking about people as people, now they're Jews, so they're Muslims, they're those people, they're liberals, they're fundamentalists, they're whatever they are. We start forgetting that they're the image of God, who we must respect. That is dangerous. And we, I read a lot of it, on Facebook. Just listen to the news. There's, there's not the image of God is coming toward our borders. Invaders are coming toward our borders. And there's probably Muslims there. And you know, if we get a few terrorists, wait a second. We just went from Guatemalans to invaders to terrorists. How, how did that happen? I thought they were just kids who were, you know, okay. I can... Um, is anybody not uncomfortable yet? We're getting there. If you're not uncomfortable yet, um, I'm uncomfortable. So, um, 
Let's, let's keep reading here. So do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Let, 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 me, uh, let me let in the Africans here since I'm an African. When you label someone a witch, that woman killed so-and-so. Before long, that woman might just get kicked out or beaten or killed because now she's not a person, not a grandma. She's a witch. That's where we move things. So do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Your words can hurt people. They can even endanger their lives. He says, because I am the Lord. Do not hate. So it gets to the, he's starting to get at the heart now. Not just about what you do with a knife. It's the hate. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so he will not share in their guilt. So if someone does something wrong, rebuke them frankly. Do not just harbor hate in your... Maybe you need to even need to rebuke each other about our hate. But we don't just harbor it. Deal with it. And do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Okay, so I hadn't murdered anybody, but now we're getting a little bit, you know, hate. Um, do not bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. This whole Leviticus 19 is actually kind of a riff on the, on the 10 words. It's all about the 10 words. And this one isn't specifically about murder, but it, it kind of is. And in case you're looking here and you... You're saying, wow, so love your neighbor as yourself was not actually Jesus' original idea. He was quoting scripture. That's right. And when he said, when the guy said, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, fellow Israelite is what it says, right? The guy hadn't read to the rest of the chapter. Just a few verses later, it says, when a foreigner resides among you in the land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So this is all about that Yahweh is our God, and that's why we have to do this. And it's not just that I have to treat my neighbor who's like me civilly and love them. I have to treat those people, foreigners and others, as I would be treated myself. So what does Jesus say? Jesus gives his version Moses stood on a mountain and gave God's, or got God's commandments. Jesus goes to the Sermon on the Mount and gives his interpretation of the commandments. And, Mo, and, and uh, it's very purposeful that Matthew has him on a mountain because he's doing the interpretation of these commandments. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told, this is what, 1,400 years earlier, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, here's my interpretation of that, let me get at the heart of this, which is already in the law. I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So Jesus is saying, you broke this commandment if you got angry with someone, you called somebody an idiot, or you cursed someone. Anybody ever done that? I read your Facebook accounts, so. I've seen some people say some things about some other people and call them a lot of names. I've heard our current president called a lot of names. 
I've heard our former president called a lot of names. I've heard a lot of officials and, and, and different people called a lot of names. Jesus is saying, you call somebody an idiot, you're not just an idiot. You're in danger of judgment. You should be judged. This is where murder starts. He says you've already got murder in your heart. If you're even angry. Now, I get angry. So I'm guilty. I get angry with people who are so idiotic in the things they say on Facebook. <laughs> so that makes me no better, right? And the things that, uh, the things that are, are said, so I have to watch my language. I have to th watch my speech. What I say about people can be a heart of a murderer. Hate, anger, Jesus gets at the root. He goes on and says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So he's saying this person's bringing their goat or whatever and they're bringing it into the temple. They get there and they're about to give it to the priest and they go, oh, you know what? Somebody doesn't like me. There, there is something I have with somebody. He says, tie that goat up and go back. I didn't notice anybody during the offering like slip out. But that's what Jesus is saying. You come here, don't, don't go just, you know. You can if you want to, but you can wait till the end of the sermon too if you want to slip out. But um, the point is, you got something against someone, get that dealt with. You can't say, I love God and hate my neighbor. It's serious that Jesus wants us to reconcile with other people. Um... Okay, so Luke 6, Jesus continues. This is kind of Luke's version of this and um, a similar thing. But he says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Okay, so, you know, the list was getting a little uncomfortably long. You know, my fellow American, my fellow Christian, you know, my fellow Israelite, I was okay with that, sort of. And then it got to be those foreigners. Now he's going way too far. My enemies? You know what they've done? You know why they're my enemy? But he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. This is not easy. If you've been really hurt, this is not easy. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Offer the other also. So do you remember in the law, they wanted to make sure that justice was done, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I think Gandhi said, and then the whole world will be blind and toothless, right? Um, Jesus had a different way, which Gandhi had read. Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount, which was, they slap you on one, you don't slap them back. You say, how about the other one? If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Not do to others as they've done to you. No, no, no. Not. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Jesus is... Um, 
So let me, let me keep reading here. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And he goes on and says, lend to those who lend to them, etc. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Remember we said if we follow these 10 words, we as a people will reflect the image of God. If we do this, we will look like the Father. We will look like Jesus' people because we act like Jesus did. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others. Instead of judging, condemning, forgive them, and you will be forgiven. And the implication is you might not be forgiven if you don't forgive. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. And now he has the image of somebody pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Now for that, you've got a picture of market in Tanzania. And we're piling up the corn and they're putting the corn in your lap and they're not just denting in the side so it isn't quite that big. No, no, no. They're making it bigger. It's overflowing into your lap. They're shaking it down so that you can get all the corn in there. You're going to get back what you have received. If you have spoken words of scorn and contempt, you're going to get them back. If you have given forgiveness, you're going to get it back. If you have given blessing, you're going to get it back. We ramp up each other's Whatever it is. Um, so he goes on. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Swahili has a great saying for this. Nyani haoni kundule which means the baboon never sees its own rear end. Um, so we all look at other people and say, look at them. Look at their Facebook posts. Look at that ugly. Look at, the, look at those liberals. Look at those conservatives. Look at those whatever. He's got a good point. I've usually got some stuff in my eye that doesn't help me see too clearly what's going on. Somehow I'm really good at forgiving myself, much better than I am at forgiving other people. But if I want to be forgiven, I've got to forgive myself. Um, this particular passage took on a, a new uh, poignance for me when I, I was in Kenya and at a, con a doctor's conference that I was speaking at and the surgeon was there. And... Um, the uh, surgeon told me that he was at 9-11 in the Twin Towers when the planes hit. He was on a lower floor. He got out. Um, he went back home to Virginia. He, he was there in the triage to treat people. He went back to Virginia, and in the adult Sunday school class, they're all like, tell us about it. What happened? You know, and so, so, in, uh, so he told them about what happened, and then he read this text that I just read to you. And then he just stood there. And one of his friends in the front row, who was an Air Force pilot, jumped up and said, you can't expect us to do that. And he said, 
what if we had? What if we had fed their hungry and clothed the naked and helped the widows? And what if we had spent that money blessing our enemies? What would have happened? The really interesting thing is that he grew up in Pakistan. He's still, the last I knew, a surgeon in Pakistan. And, and he was just a few miles from where bin Laden was killed. Um, he was on the other side of it, too. And he was there loving his enemies. He said that the mosque next door blared all these uh, things about their Christian hospital. But he said the imam came to me for eye surgery, too. And uh, he knows everybody. They don't say it out loud, but, you know, they, uh, they were able to bless each other. He said, what if we had actually followed that? So, um, so the war on terror, how are we doing? Estimated 1.3 million people were killed as a result of the wars in Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan between 2003 and 2015. Um, actually, some people say 2 million. U.S. military killed 500 civilians in 2017. Pentagon said, there's a headline, but watchdog groups say number far higher. They say some, maybe 6,000. You know, it's re it's, it really helps us as, as a U.S. military, if we can send a drone or a missile or an airstrike, but it's a lot harder to tell who the civilians are. It's not as good necessarily for the people on the other side. 700 billion military budget this year, five to seven trillion so far we have spent on this war on terror. Um, uh, president said, $7 million in the Mideast, and what do we got for it when the infrastructure is falling apart? But his budget is just as big or bigger. Um, what if we had spent that loving enemies? $700 billion a year. Maybe we'd have less enemies. As it turns out, we've killed a bunch of people, and it seems like we have more enemies. I don't know. I don't know if we are winning or not. So we started out the war on terror in one country. Now we are in seven countries, and actually we have operations in 39% of the world's countries. Um, so you notice the insets. You've got things in Asia and Indonesia and South America. And um, Is this authorized by God? Um, some of you have seen uh, Hacksaw Ridge. I saw it on the plane, and I don't know whether to recommend it or not because it's a really gory movie, but I was, uh, I was impressed by it. So this uh, private, Dodd, grew up, in, and in his home, well, his dad was a, a drunken kind of a loser who had, he had PTSD from World War I, but his mom took him faithfully to church, and they had a, a poster on the wall that had the Ten Commandments and said, do not kill. And it had a picture of Cain and Abel. And that impressed him. And one time when his dad and his uncle were fighting, he took the gun away from his dad. And one time he hit his brother with a brick and he thought, well, I never want to do that again. And then he was working in a defense factory in World War II. And so he, he could easily get deferment and not have to go. But uh, he volunteered. He said, I'm not a conscientious objector. I'm a conscientious cooperator. I think that something needs to be done. I will not hold a rifle or kill anyone, but I want to be a medic. I want to do what I can for this. And uh, he got physically abused and, and verbally abused, and they tried to kick him out, but he persevered, and he was a little guy, five foot two. And, uh, 
And then at Hacksaw Ridge, the second biggest battle of, in Okinawa, he, they had all his machine gun nests and he went in and he, they, the, his platoon retreated, but he stayed rescuing people, bringing them over and, and repelling them down this huge 400 foot cliff or whatever, and um, rescuing them, including a number of Japanese who he rescued. So he was able in the midst of that war to do what he felt now it was required. Now he was injured later. He spent five years after the war recuperating from his injuries, never fully recovered, never was able to work. He was given a Medal of Honor. He figured he probably saved 50 lives in just that night. The military said 100. So they said, oh, let's split the difference, and they called it 75. But uh, he was hauling people out all night, totally exhausted. And this was his prayer. Lord, please help me get one more. So in the middle of that war, everyone, Japanese, American, was the image of God to him. Lord, please help me get one more. Help me rescue one more. So I don't know what we're supposed to do. I sure don't know what America is supposed to do in this situation. I would like to know what we as Christians, individually and together, as this church, are supposed to do about a lot of things. Um, and uh, personally, my, my, um, my mom's father was a conscientious objector. He, he took this literally, do not kill, and he would not fight in World War I. And they put him in prison for 15 years. Um, now they let him out after two years when the war was over. My father felt like he wanted to be part of World War II, and, when, and uh, he, was, uh, he was a medic. He was in Guam. Although the war was over, he never really saw any action. Um, my father-in-law, he volunteered to fight in the Korean War and volunteered to be a paratrooper and wrote to his congressman and said, why am I sitting in this base? I want to get to the war. And he fought in Korea and because he felt like this is what I need to do. There are other people who have wives and children and whatever, and I should volunteer and do my part. And um, I've been with some of my Korean colleagues who thanked him very much for what he did in the war. Each of them had to ask the question, what is God's will for me in this situation? What is God's will for us in this situation? And I don't know the right answer for you or for us. And I, I've always thought, well, you know, I didn't really have to, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that. I'm glad I was never drafted. But I'm living in the middle of wars. And I'm paying for them. And I'm voting or writing or not writing about them. And there's stuff going on with abortion. There's stuff going on with domestic violence. There's stuff going on with all this. What is my responsibility? And how do I deal with the issues in my heart? The hate, the anger. Those are some of the questions. Um, well, I look to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we murdered the life. We murdered Jesus. Um, okay, it was other people who were responsible. It was the Roman government. It was the Jewish Sadducee. You, you know, it was a mistrial, whatever. But we were part of it because it was for our sins. It was for our hate. 
And Jesus lived his life loving, serving. And that upset people. And so they killed him because it was messing with their power. And Jesus has given us the prospect of forgiveness. He has taken all of our wrong, our hate, our anger, bore it on himself and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We can accept his sacrifice that pays for what I have done wrong, for my anger, for my hate, for my participation, my slander. And he can forgive me. He can forgive you. And he can help us to live in a way that's actually positively loving. First John, who John knew Jesus, he wrote this. He said, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. That's the real message. Love your neighbor. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who, know, who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. So John says the same thing. I'm a murderer if I hate my brother or sister. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We don't have life when we're hating. We know, that real, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. Jesus showed us the example of how to really be loving, how to really obey this commandment. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Private Dodd and Hacksaw Ridge was doing this. He was trying to follow Jesus. He was giving up his life so that he could help his brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions, by what we say, by what we post, by what we do, by the actions we do to people inside of this family and outside of this family. Let us show by our actions that we love people. We love each other and we love others whoever they are, because we see them as the image of God. So what do I do? A few suggestions. Take your feelings to Yahweh, to the Lord. A, a great suggestion is to read the Psalms. Read them out loud. Make them yours. And I'd say even those really tough ones, they're called some, a few of those Psalms are called cursing Psalms, you know? Break their teeth. Smash their children against the rocks. This is coming out of the heart of someone who has been deeply wounded. Somebody who was crushed by the Babylonians. Somebody who has had terrible things happen to them. But who is he talking to? He's not posting it on Facebook. He's talking to God. And he's saying, God, deal with that person. They're unjust. They're wrong. What if... We had prayed cursing psalms for Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. God, break his teeth. He's oppressing his people. Deal with him. Could God have done it? But we don't trust God to do it, do we? 
We've got to do it ourselves. What if we pray, pray those cursing psalms, if you really hate someone, and then you bring it to God, and then God, because you say, God, you're the just judge, you're in charge of death and life, and I think this person deserves, and then God can say, okay, thank you for your request, I'll, do, I'll look into that. And I had a couple things I wanted to talk to you about too. <laughs> and God does. Does God does deal with injustice. Sometimes not the way we like. Abraham Lincoln said, none of us expected this civil war to go this long, but maybe God is paying us back. Maybe until every drop of blood drawn with the lash is returned with one drawn with the sword, maybe that's when God will be restore us to hell. Abraham Lincoln was great because he saw other people as people. He saw Southerners. He said, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't sell my slave because how am I going to make a living? I can see the situation. He saw slaves as real people. He was unique in being able to see both sides and empathize and see people as the image of God. So take your feelings to God. Pray about them. If you're angry, somebody's really hurt you, take that to God and tell God to deal with it and then let him deal with it. Um, usually you notice by the end of the Psalms, they kind of come around to saying, you know, I got a new perspective and, I, I, and wow, God, you're amazing. You're powerful. That, pray the whole Psalm. Don't just, don't just pick out all the cursing Psalms and pray those parts. Always speak of God's image with respect. I always talk about other people, even your enemies, with respect. Use respectful words. Honor them in the way you talk about them. This isn't that easy to do. And it seems to me it's getting worse. Um, we need to speak with respect, even if they're your enemy. Because um, like I said, nobody ever kills a person. They always kill some label other than that. Follow Jesus' word and example. Now, there's a huge thing. <laughs> Follow Jesus' word and example. Jesus showed us how to do it. Even in the midst of being beaten, hurt, oppressed, he showed us how to love, how to forgive, how to do good, how to bless. And then ask, for love and power. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the love and power that you don't have. Could the, could the worship team come up here? Um, <laughs> let me be honest. I don't have this in me. There's people I've been angry with, and uh, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Jan and I have managed to do that pretty well, trying to deal with things before we go to bed. There's a few people that I haven't always put it away before I went to bed. And then it kind of woke me up. <laughs> Tended to kind of eat at me when I didn't do that. Um, anger is not easy to deal with. Now, there is righteous anger. God was angry, that's why he did what he did to the Egyptians. That's why he did what he did to the Canaanites. That's why he did what he did to the Israelites. He had righteous anger about the things they were doing wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. 
And anger can motivate us in positive ways, but we need to channel it, bring it to God. Because um, that's where righteous anger really is. Um, so I don't think there's any righteous hate. I haven't found that yet. Um, we need God to, to help us love. Um, if we could stand up, um, I want us to pray. And if you have something you want to uh, pray about here, the altar is open. We'll have other people to pray with you. Maybe there is somebody you're really angry with that you need to pray about. You need to come to the altar, deal with it, and then go out and deal with them. Um, or maybe you need to just go home and deal with them. Um, so I don't know exactly how you need to respond to this. I, I, I'm... Still working out the practicalities of my own response to this. But I think we need to ask God how he wants us to respond. Lord, thank you for delivering us from our bondages. And thank you for showing us how to be a different kind of people. Thank you for delivering us from our hate, our anger, our sin. And it says that when we were still your enemies, you died for us. Wow, we want that kind of love. And only you have it. We confess that we are angry, hateful, upset a lot. And sometimes it comes out in speech and actions that we're not proud of. We confess our corporate sin that sometimes together as people from the different groups we're part of, we've spoken things that were wrong. We've, we've harbored anger and resentment. We confess as a church, as Christians, as America, as others that we are part of, we have done things that are wrong. We ask you to forgive us for our corporate sins. We ask you to forgive us for our individual sins. We ask you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and injustice. You said if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your cleansing. Cleanse our lips and our actions and our minds. And show us the steps you want us to take to be more loving to your image in this world. We thank you for giving yourself, giving your life so that we could come out of death and into life, into eternal life, that we could be forgiven, that we could be resurrected now and in eternity. God, give us life and help us to share life and love and joy with those around us. Only you can give us that. Only you can give us that. Without you, we, we spiral into, a, into just recriminations and adding insult to insult and insult to injury and 
getting worse and worse. But you, you can give us life because you are the life giver. You gave us life in creation. You gave us life through your death and resurrection. And we ask that you would pour your life out into us and pour your life out through us so that we can bless others. Amen. I'm going to say a benediction so you can go. And then we're going to sing a celebration song about Jesus' love. We're going to sing a resurrection chant about Jesus' life and his power. And uh, you can go, you can stay and sing as you like. But I'm going to give a benediction first. In the name of the Father who loved you and created you, in the name of the Son who gave his life for you, in the name of the Spirit of love and power, go out and radiate love and life into this world.